0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Dave Baxter and Mary McDougall from the Home Team and Adrian Lowcock, Head of Personal Investing at Willis-Owen. Last year, Neil Woodford was removed as manager of LF Woodford Equity Income after several months of suspension and it was decided to wind the fund up. But while that may have seemed like the conclusion to its slow demise, for investors whose money is still locked up in the fund, which is now called LF, equity income, this episode is far from finished. And this week, there have been more developments. Dave, what's happened?
1: Hi, Leonora. So after many months of uncertainty, twists and turns and generally negative developments, I think Woodford investors now have some good news to celebrate. Uh, That comes in the form of the first distribution of capital from the fund. So around now, investors should be uh, getting some of their money back. The amount you'll be getting varies depending on which share class you're in. Uh, So you should be getting between 59 pence per share and 46.4 pence per share. Uh, Another thing about this is um, it's going to account for quite a decent chunk of the fund. It should account for about 75% of assets.
0: But as you said, it's the uh, first distribution. So when can investors expect the next one?
1: Very good question. And unfortunately, one that we don't really have answers to. The first capital distribution has come from selling down of the uh, more liquid elements of the portfolio. So the quoted stocks that are fairly easy to trade. Now we're getting into another period of uncertainty. So Link Fund Solutions, the authorised corporate director for the funds, have said they won't know the exact timing of the next um, payout. The reason behind that is, you know, one of the troublesome aspects of the funds. It's the unquoted and generally illiquid holdings. They may struggle to shift those and they simply don't know when they're going to be able to sell them.
0: Okay, so maybe not such good news. As um, so as bearing that in mind, does anybody have any idea, ultimately, how much money investors are likely to get back?
1: No, again, it's difficult. So we have a bit of an update on um, kind of the costs associated with the fund. Um, that's a bit of bad news, I suppose. Um, you have a further round. £10 million pounds of estimated costs that will come from the winding up of the funds. So that comes from things like uh, brokerage costs, transaction fees and other costs. But the difficulty with these uh, unquoted assets is you don't know how much they'll sell for. And in the past, we've seen some some write-downs of the valuations. So you could see further falls, um, but we just don't know.
0: Adrian, um, I think as Dave said, although people are getting their money back, on the flip side, there are costs delays, lack of clarity. So are investors in LF Woodford Equity Income being treated fairly?
2: I think this is a good question because there is a legal process and I think it's important to say as unpleasant as all this is, that process has been quite, is quite defined and laid out and it's a procedural thing. So there being there's a legal process and they're following that legally. I think where perhaps they haven't been treated as, as well as they could have been is in the communications. So uh, thing, uh, things like link delaying the payment because perhaps a, a slight misunderstanding of when they would get the money in to be able to pay it out and when they could actually liquidate the port- the, the, the liquid parts of the portfolio. Um, and I think communications have been pretty poor. I think the there's, there's going to be a lot of questions going on about Woodford's role in, in running the fund. Did he run that fairly according to expectations? But he was quite transparent in his position, to be fair to Woodford, for one of the few things I think you can probably say about that. And, then, and ultimately... You, as an investor, you, you know it's important to understand what you're investing in because it it is your money that gets trapped into these situations. So I think it, it's an unpleasant situation with a lot of lessons for people for for the for the industry to learn about um, how we manage risk, how we communicate to investors, and how we try and avoid these situations going forward. Um, and I think you know the, the where they were treated perhaps unfairly is is the risk that were being taken in the fund when it was being managed by Woodford.
0: You mentioned avoiding this again um should investors be concerned about something similar happening again because to put it in context nothing like this has ever happened in the uk funds industry before uh, certainly not on that scale is it it's such a bizarre event will something really that bad happen again
2: um unfortunately never say never uh, mm. that's the first thing i think we probably should we should always say on this Funds do get suspended, but by and large, they are in areas like commercial property, uh, illiquid assets, not what you would consider to be a mainstream, fairly blue chip, core equity income holding that is basically suitable for your grandparents, your mum and dad, or, 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 you know, any families across the country. Um, And that's what makes this exceptionally rare. There will be, at some point in in the future, something perhaps slightly different but similar effect will happen that that's inevitable whether that's five ten twenty years in the future i don't know but you know you you have to plan and expect the unexpected to be honest a repeat of this sort of illiquid situation is very unlikely because fund managers are have reacted quickly to it they have um taken illiquid assets out of open-ended funds and um the regulator is looking at it uh, the data providers are pulling data together and building new data points to assess liquidity. So they're doing stuff to address it to avoid this situation being repeated.
0: Okay, and is there anything investors themselves can do to, I don't know, I suppose avoid getting into that. For example, um, is a maximum amount of money proportion of your assets perhaps you should put into one fund?
2: Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, so investing in a one fund and, and a fund manager is another risk within your portfolio and therefore it's about managing that risk. Mm. Uh, doing that, you effectively don't have all your eggs in one basket so you don't back one fund manager and there are many reasons to do that. Fund managers have different styles, they have different periods of performance and there is key person risk and issues like this. So I would say as a simple rule, don't put more than 10% in one fund. And you, uh, typically, you would say have between 15 and 20 holdings in a portfolio uh, uh, to get diversification to reduce manager risk and style bias within a portfolio.
0: You mentioned funds suspended from trading. And um, at the moment, M&G property portfolio is suspended from trading How similar situation to uh, LF Woodford equity income is this?
2: If you look at it from the investor's perspective, actually, there's a big similarity. Your money is stuck in the fund. You're experiencing the same thing at that level. But then when you dig under it, it's a property fund. So part of investing in property in a open ended structure is this liquidity issue. So it's more... Investors in these funds are more likely to have expected that to happen. It's happened mm-hmm. quite a few times in, in the last few years. Um, so, so during the financial crisis around Brexit vote and more recently as well. The reason for this is, is because... When you get money flowing out and you have a property, so say you have a £70 million property and you've, got, um, you've run out of cash to pay people money, you have to sell a £70 million property. And that takes time. So they suspend it to basically get the best price. Uh, I think the difference with something like the Woodford situation is this isn't so much a fire sale as a managing the sale. Um, that doesn't mean you'll necessarily get the very best price because people know you're selling. Mm. And it's also not selling the whole trust it's just one one or two properties perhaps and then that money will then go back into the fund, and the fund will reopen and pay those who want to leave, and the rest will continue running. So this isn't the end of M and G property; it will continue to function afterwards. It's just, I think, a, an unfortunate trait of the structures.
0: Okay. And would it be fair to say, obviously, Woodford had also made big losses. Uh, you know, so things were going pretty badly. Um, obviously, I can't predict the future, or you can't predict the future. But I think it'd be fair to say, M and G property has every chance of you know going on and making a decent return for its investors in future, doesn't? Uh,
2: yes, absolutely. Yeah. The, the underlying uh, mm-hmm. ability uh, of the fund manager in, in the sort of medium term is, isn't in question here. What, what this was driven by was actually economics and the politics. Mm-hmm. So it was largely driven about the events around Brexit, um, and we had same questions sort of in uh, March last year as we hit one of the Brexit deadlines, and there were same concerns over the general ele- the general election and uh, before Christmas, and that's sort of what triggered it.
0: You spoke about the issue of property in open ended funds. So should you actually? avoid accessing illiquid assets like property via open-ended funds.
2: So this is a debate that's been going on for a long time. Mm. And if you understand the risks and you're aware that this suspensions can happen and you are investing in property for, say, the very long term, so say you buy M&G property fund and you buy it for 10 or 20 years or longer, then... The suspensions in the short term aren't a significant issue. The trouble is that there are investors who may think that and then they change their mind and they change their mind at these sort of crunch points. There is also issues with uh, open-ended. You have to have more cash to be able to meet redemptions. Uh, there's a cost involved or a loss of gains perhaps involved in, in in the suspension and sale of the assets that you might not want to sell. So on, on balance, I mean, I do think the open-ended structure... Doesn't uh, so unit trusts don't don't work brilliantly for illiquid assets, and I think we're getting to that realization because the proposals in place are well remove this idea of being able to trade daily and trade perhaps monthly hmm. or quarterly. I don't think they suit that the retail audience. I mean, we 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 invest online now, and in every industry you look at online, it's daily transactions. That's what we we are used mm-hmm. to, so it feels like a bit of a reverse. I think I think largely. Actually, investment trusts could be quite a—you a, know—they're they're a, a better tool for this sort of thing.
0: Are they much less risky for accessing property or other illiquid assets? I'm thinking they're not as risky, are they?
2: No, I mean mm. the underlying investments are still fundamentally mm. the same, so you still got the same risks there. You can buy an investment trust at a premium, um, which therefore means you could be paying instead of for the assets, say, maybe worth a pound, you could be paying one pound ten. On the flip side, you might pay ninety p for assets worth one pound, so you could buy them at a discount. So there are risks about your timing of your buying buying investment trusts. Um, the other issue is if, if you sort of closed the whole open ended market to, to tomorrow and it moved into investment trusts, could they cope with that demand and the flow of demand? Is it they're not necessarily set up for that that type of thing yet. So there's a bit of work that may need to done on, done on the investment trust side to make it work. But they they, they avoid some of the issues they can also borrow money, so they are geared more to the uh, mm. uh, to the, the exposure of the underlying assets so your pound could be worth one pound fifty if they borrow for 50 percent cent they're probably not going to borrow that much, but if they borrow a lot of money and therefore your investment could go up and down a lot more so it could be a lot more volatile because of that borrowing but generally speaking, I think it just removes that liquidity issue
0: so um what funds would you suggest for accessing commercial property? <laughs>
2: So I think um, I'd have a look at something like TR, Property Investment Trust, as um, a very experienced uh, fund manager. And uh, this one invests in uh, property shares. It generally focuses on Europe, including the UK. That's a good diversifier. There's also uh, BMO, uh, commercial property, um, which is a bit more of a bricks and mortar type thing, uh, investing directly in the commercial property area. So that's uh, uh, you get sort of two options, property shares and that. And the third one I, I sort of looked at, having said open-ended doesn't necessarily work for, for property. There are still some interesting ones in things like um, uh, the First State Global uh, listed infrastructure. So it's not commercial property, but it's perhaps bigger, bigger projects. Could be prisons, it could be hospitals, that sort of thing. And that, I, I mentioned that because infrastructure is uh, a, a long-term projects, great for for an income diversification and uh, general diversification on portfolios.
0: And again, property shares, so no liquidity issues. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, What kind of investors could consider, um, you know, these types of funds and and, and the assets you you outlined?
2: So I think it's actually a broad broad, uh, church here because it's like um, every investor should have equities and bonds. It's just the proportion to which you have them sort of addresses your attitude to risk. And I think property is just another asset class that's come in 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 more recent years uh, that adds to that mix of equities, bonds and property. For a uh, an adventurous investor, you're probably going to be more in equities than bonds and property. Um, but a property is a good diversifier. So it helps reduce your risk and reduce the volatility in the portfolio. So I'd suggest having some exposure to it. But if you're an adventurous investor, it may be less than 10%. And if you're a, a more cautious investor, it may be 10,
0: 20%. Okay, thank you, Adrian. Some really helpful points. You'll no doubt be following the latest developments in the coronavirus outbreak, which is spreading across China and has affected a small number of people in other countries. This has resulted in some market volatility over the past few days, as traders look to sell out of affected areas. But Adrian, should investors, and I emphasise investors rather than traders, do anything in response to the coronavirus and or market volatility?
2: It is difficult not not to feel you should react to this. I think investors need to just take stock. This is a very liquid and fluid situation. And, you know, today we've just uh, found out that it's better to the UK. I think you need to sort of look at the situation. Markets have reacted already to some extent. So the, the airlines have been hit, the oil, oil producers have been hit, and there's concern on GDP. But if you're an investor, you should be investing for the longer term. And at this point, we don't know how serious this will get. Uh, History suggests these things cause panic in markets, markets overreact, then everything settles down and... Actually, the impact on GDP is usually very short-term and very minimal. Um, There's obviously concerns that you know China is still a big manufacturer for global uh, goods and so uh, goods, so that could have an impact on, on on the global economy. But generally speaking, I think it will, if, if you know if things sort of settle down and this doesn't expand too too significantly, then it won't it won't be a big impact on markets in the medium term.
0: Um, just more generally, why is it a bad idea for investors to take a knee-jerk reaction to, um, let's say, serious situations that spring out of the blue like this?
2: Basically, the, what happens is we pay – We, it's, it's in our nature to – put a a greater emphasis on the immediate, what's happening right in front of us, and places a much greater importance on that than actually is. So the reaction to investors, and this is whether you're professional investors or private investors, uh, is to react first and ask questions later. And actually, the reality is these things don't actually have much of an impact on markets. Um, And it's surprising, you know, you look at the long term performance charts, and there's very little You can see in there that there's some really big things like the 1929 crash or the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. But beyond that, most things are just dots that you can't even see on the line. Um, So, you know, there's an overreaction. And if you do that, you end up selling after the event, selling on a bit more of the loss. And then you don't come back in the market until after it's recovered. So therefore, you don't get the pickup either.
0: I suppose the thing to do is... Not react at the time, but perhaps be well set up just generally for a lot of situations. So, is there any way you can prepare your investments? Let's say well ahead of time for any potential problems that perhaps you you know we can't know are going to happen you know such as the coronavirus or whatever else you know may happen in the next twelve months twenty four months thirty six months
2: yeah so this is all about diversification um, you don't know which markets will perform best in any one given year as much as we'd like to, <laughs> to try and predict that it's very very hard so having exposure across equities globally in all the different countries but also having exposure to different asset classes and I think you know there is an element of it being defensive as well, because capital preservation is a big part of your total performance, so funds like the uh, BMY Mellon Real Return Fund, you know, it looks at capital preservation as, as a part of its strategy, and then looks to grow from there. You could also have you know not just focus on growth funds which have done very well recently, but look at things like equity income, which actually has a, a defensive element in its in its structure because they're looking at companies that produce a lot of income and pay it out, so they're quite defensive in their nature. And Threadneedle UK Equity Income is is a core. Uh, UK one there and that, that would perhaps be a little bit more cautious than a pure growth equity fund at the moment.
0: We, um, we've always been talking about panic selling existing investments, which is a bad idea, uh, especially when they've fallen in value. But for investors with new money, um, and that's probably quite relevant um, coming up towards the end of a tax year, because imagine people using up their ISA allowances, for example, should these people perhaps avoid putting new money into China, Asia or any other types of funds?
2: The biggest issue you have there is, is timing. If this gets worse, then the markets could fall a lot further. And therefore, if you put your money in, you're going to feel a bit silly. Actually, I wouldn't worry about that too much because if you're buying into China, you shouldn't be buying in what's China doing over the next six weeks. You should be buying into China, what's China doing over the next 10 years. You can do things. You can drip feed your money in. So, you know, if you're putting, say, £5,000 into China, you could break it into £1,000 lots and just drip feed it over a couple of months. And the long-term story of Asia, you know, it's the… Those are the economies that are growing. They've got the population dynamics that are in the right place and they've got the growing middle classes. So that long-term trend is still there. And it's just a case of what prices is Is the valuation attractive. Um, Buying when everyone else is selling is a difficult thing to do, um, but often proves to be the right thing to do.
0: Okay, so, um, you know, if you're one of those investors of a very long-term investment horizon, are there any China or Asia funds that are worth consideration?
2: Um, Yeah, so we like uh, uh, the Fidelity China Focus Fund. It's got a value tilt to it. They look at companies that have perhaps been disregarded by the market due to the economic or or company-specific reasons. So they're looking... uh, They're effectively cheap because the market's not looking at them. Um, I think that's for a direct China exposure is probably for people wanting to take a little bit more risk or perhaps have a larger portfolio. Um, But you could also consider things like uh, the uh, Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus Fund managed by Matthew Dobbs. Um, He's a very good stock picker. It won't have just China, but it it has about 9%, 10% in China at the moment. Um, And that means he can go in and out of China as he sees fit. So the manager could sort of act on your behalf to Cut back exposure to China, or increase exposure to China if he sees some value opportunities in the current sell-off.
0: Right, obviously, we've been talking about not panicking, which is important. But nevertheless, let's say current market conditions and uh, you know similar market conditions at other times probably aren't much fun if you're running a portfolio with a wealth preservation goal. So I suppose now or even at other times of it any areas that people with a wealth preservation goal should be avoiding
2: i think you have to have a look at perhaps some of the growth companies so they've done very well and valuations are high and stretched and, and that sometimes is the nature. I mean they, they could reach these valuations and actually justify them in the, in the medium and longer term. In the short term though they can become incredibly volatile if, if people go from sort of willing to take risk to taking risk off the table because people sell the expensive stuff. So if you're in a wealth preservation mode you avoid the equities that are expensive or look on trade on high multiples because they can be very sensitive to, to market swings. So that is things like the techs, uh, some of the tech, big tech stocks, so the uh, the FANGs in, in America and perhaps some of the sort of uh, growth companies in the UK. And we've seen that happen with, you know, um, disappointments in in the Azure and Unilever in the last uh, week or so. Um, and that's, you know, they, they, they disappoint and therefore the share prices can get hit.
0: I mean, what, you know, sort of assets would be good if you're running a sort of, you know, kind of like a wealth preservation mandate?
2: So I think the you can do things like gold, which has a, a defensive characteristics. You can look at things like absolute return funds, which have been disappointing by and large but they their job is to protect capital as a big chunk of their objectives and equity income if you're looking at income uh, if you still wanted to have equity exposure because you get the dividend and the value on those uh, those aren't as uh, pricey as other parts of the market
0: Okay, and how would you suggest accessing these?
2: As I suggest, i just look at the BMY Mellon uh, Real Return Fund that's uh, uh, got the, the, the defensive characteristics. Gold, um, BlackRock Gold in general, um, is, as it says, a Germany generally invested in gold, mainly through gold mining companies and that sort of thing. And then you've got uh, equity income There's a big choice here. I mean, we've got Threadneedle UK Equity Income Fund. There's a, a huge choice in, in that market. We've got a lot of good managers in that space, actually, in the UK. And you could go global. You could look at something like M&G Global Dividend um, to get that a uh, uh, sort of global exposure to equity income.
0: Okay, thank you, Adrian. Some really helpful suggestions. And see next week's Investors Chronicle, um, the 7th of February issue, for Mary's update on Fidelity China Special Situations Fund. If you invest in funds or shares, it's likely that you buy and hold them via an investment platform such as Hargreaves Lansdowne, Interactive Investor, or AJ Bell You Invest, for example. In the case of shares or funds such as investment trusts that are listed in the London Stock Exchange, you should also, in theory, be able to take part in investor votes. Mary, you've been looking at this. Do many private investors take that opportunity with their listed holdings and take part in the votes
3: concerning their shares and in the investment trusts? Hi, Leonora. Yes, I have been looking at it. In short, no, they don't. According to the UK Share Association, only 6% of private investors who use platforms exercise their votes. And on Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is by far the biggest platform, they've confirmed that on average as few as 0.5% of users vote on AGM resolutions. Um, And this is damaging for shareholder democracy and corporate governance, as shareholders are supposed to hold companies to account. Also statistics from research firm Hardman & Co., show that 25% of FTSE 100 companies are owned by UK-based private investors. So shareholders' votes really do count um, if people think that they don't. And this increases to 35% for aim-listed stocks. OK, so, so why aren't people voting? Well, they're mainly not voting because they're not informed about AGMs and not really made aware of their voting rights. Um, and there are two structural issues at play here. The first is that investors are now held in nominee accounts through platforms, which means you're not the registered share owner, the platformers, whereas historically investors held paper certificates um, and the companies could contact them directly. But companies now have to rely on the platform to relay information to the shareholders. The second problem is that platforms are not really incentivized to encourage people to vote. Um, so platforms used to charge users to vote, but they've been pressured into offering the service for free. But this means that the platforms bear the administrative costs themselves. So they don't go out of their way to inform users of their voting rights. So what can you do to make sure you get to vote on your listed securities? Well, you can keep yourself informed as to when AGMs are coming up. And all of the main platforms do um, do let you cast your votes through them. So Hargreaves Lansdowne and A.J. Bell invite you to email them your instruction or you can call them and some platforms such as the share center and interactive investor have online voting services so you can sign up for them and they will notify you of when the agms are
0: Okay, um, so basically it relies on you being very informed and very proactive, which I guess not everybody has the time always to do. So I mean, is the situation likely to improve? Is it going to you know if
3: any plans to make it a bit easier for people to to vote on their listed holdings? Yes, well, campaigners have flagged the issue of investors being held in nominee accounts, potentially becoming disenfranchised. And as a result, the Law Commission is putting together a scoping study on intermediated securities, which will be published in autumn this year. And activists are hopeful that this could lead to a change in the rules, allowing underlying investors to be on share registers.
0: Thank you, Mary. And you can read her full report on how to vote your shares and investment trusts in this week's money section. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle or the website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on the wind-up of LF Equity Income, how to invest in illiquid assets, and the effects of the coronavirus on markets and investments. Thank you for listening, and have a good weekend.